So I talked to him a little bit about it, but I didn't give like a huge introduction to it. But basically, the Pacific Crest Trail uh, is a trail that starts off on the Mexican border and goes all the way up to the Canadian border. So you hike the like all of uh, California, Oregon, Washington, and all that area. So basically, my dad got colon cancer. Uh, he was diagnosed with stage 3B colon cancer during my gap year, and so that delayed my entry into medical school. And I originally had planned on just doing a section of it. It's called the John Muir Trail. It's in the Sierra Nevada mountain range in California. So it's about a 90-mile stretch of the Pacific Crest Trail. I was originally planning on just doing that section, but then after my dad got colon cancer, I decided to do uh, hike the entirety of the trail during my gap year and raise up money and awareness for colon cancer research. So that's uh, kind of how I got into that and uh, into the outdoors a lot because I hadn't really done anything major outdoors before then and everything. And so, yeah, that's... That's the background for the Pacific Crest Trail. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Todd Fredericks, D.O., Graduate 1993, Ohio University, at that time, College of Osteopathic Medicine, now the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I'm uh, pleased to be here for the second segment with uh, Dr. John Allarding Dio, um, his wife, Peg, and uh, Zach Wills, who is one of our OMS2s and soon to take his board exams. Hello, Zach. Hello. You have not taken your board exams yet, have you? I have not. It's when? It is... Today's the 18th, I believe. Yeah, but technically speaking, it's pre-recorded, so it'll be a week after the last segment. Okay, so yeah, I'm uh, just got done with my last. Uh, we just took ACLS and BLS courses, so certified in both of those now. So now from here to now, it's just all about boards. So just just one step along the way, just of many, you know, many tests and everything like that. So. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want to be humbled? Yes. Think about this: you have more education than the paramedics that gave you your ACLS test. And they're qualified to deliver all those drugs, and you are not. That is true. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? That we have that, that how we how we've done that. Uh, that that goes into a different discussion about how I'd like medical students to be trained. Mm-hmm. But yes, here you are, two oh, two years into medical school. That's amazing. Good for you. I uh, I feel every day of it right now. <laughs> yes, you do. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And Dr. Allerding, thank you for being here again and taking your time out of your day, and, and um, I'm glad to have you here. It's my pleasure. I am. I'm glad we were finally able to arrange it with my uh, schedule of coming and going and uh, keeping my wife's road cravings to a minimum here. You're, you're going, where's your, where's your next big trip? Uh, we're heading to Maine in June for a uh, medical conference. The Maine Osteopathic uh, Medical Association is having a conference uh, in June, and uh, we use that then as a time to connect with old friends over there because I spent a couple summers working in Maine. And uh, we, it's a state we just love to visit, so we'll spend some time there. It really is pretty up there. It's pretty in the fall on the Kankamangas Highway when you see We were just the there in October in oh. the fall. We uh, got up there late, expected fall to be over. It was just peaking uh, at the end of October this year, so we had a beautiful uh, fall drive. Isn't it nice up there? Stunning. It's really pretty. Okay, so I actually, we, we got sidetracked. The last question was, we were talking about pre- preparing for going down there, and I guess when I wrote that question, what I was thinking of is, what, what do you, when you think about going to Antarctica to work, and we just, we talked the last segment about, you're basically six months, well, we said it was March to August, right, is the winter? Uh, winter is actually uh, from about uh, 
February to the end of October. Okay, and you're down there for the whole time? It depends on what station you're at. Uh, South Pole, uh, most of the personnel uh, go in in October, uh, the end of October, and come out the end of October or early November. The medical people, they fly down in January. We did not go down with the main body. Uh, my physician's assistant and myself went down uh, mid-January, and we then flew out uh, the 7th of November. So we were down there for about 10 months. Uh, the summer doc uh, gets there in October with the main body, but he or she then leaves uh, the end of January. Mm. Um around the time that last plane moves out. So the summer dock is uh, employed for a shorter period of time than the winter dock at the South Pole. At Palmer Station, it's pretty much split into uh, six-month seasons. Um, I got there April 1st and left October 13th. The new dock got there October 6th and uh, left then uh, in uh, the end of April or the end of March uh, when the new winter dock arrived. So is Palmer Station accessible year-round by ship? It is accessible year-round by uh, at least a Class 1 icebreaker. A uh, Class 1 icebreaker can uh, maintain a forward speed of a, a knot per hour in up to a foot of ice. Um, so uh, it is considered accessible year-round. They don't run ships down there uh, between usually mid-June uh, and the end of October. There's a higher chance of it being iced in. But in an emergency, they more than likely could have access to the island if they needed it. So, so that's good. That's a good setup then for this for this uh, question. You're getting ready to go down there for somewhere between six and ten months. It'll be six months at Palmer Station again. Another winter there. Yeah. So, what are you thinking? What do you want to take with you? What do you want to brush up on? What do you? Th what What is the mental process of thinking? I'm going to be isolated effectively from. Anybody easily getting to me, you know, and we can talk, I guess, maybe lead into that with the medical personnel that are there with you and the capacity of people. But then what are the things, the stuff, the training that has to go with you to make you feel comfortable to be there for that time in that kind of isolation? Uh, short of doing a trauma surgery residency, uh, <laughs> there's, there's no way you can prepare for what may happen uh, at the South Pole in particular. Uh, what I do to prepare is uh, I spend a lot of time uh, making a reference library for myself. I look at YouTube videos on doing an appendectomy, uh, tying off a splenic artery, uh, doing any number of procedures that should I have to do that on the ice because there's no alternative, I at least have a reference there. Um, you download those and keep them with you I on a hard download, drive? Or? I download them and keep them on a hard drive because you're never 100% sure you're going to have satellite coverage to give you Internet capability. At the South Pole, the satellite uh, satellites you use for communications are above the horizon for eight hours a day. So for the bulk of your day, you're in the blind. You cannot do telecommunications, teleradiology, um, Internet, uh, telephone, uh, they do have a, uh, a limited access line that's available all year that you could probably link into something if you needed to. But for the most part, you're in the blind during that time period. So if, uh, God forbid, you had to do an, an appendectomy at the South Pole in the middle of winter uh, because they could not get a plane to you in time and the patient's life was at risk, 
you would hopefully have telemedicine uh, back up with a surgeon in uh, Denver or a surgeon in Galveston who would then walk you through the procedure uh, using the telemedicine uh, system that you've got available to you. But uh, in the absence of that, I like having a video of someone doing an appendectomy that I can put on and my PA and I can go at it if we need to. So, yeah, so you mentioned PA. So in terms of each station, what are the medical resources you have in terms of people? At the South Pole, during the winter, you have a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner uh, and a physician. Uh, during the summer, it is just the physician down there because uh, there is a flight team coming in with a flight surgeon and flight medics on a regular basis, and you can get someone off the ice uh, much quicker during the summer because you've got flights coming in on a regular basis. It makes complete sense. So they don't feel the necessity to have the two medical personnel there. Uh, but during the winter, if anything should happen to the doc, the PA will assume medical responsibility for the station as well as the doc that he has to take care of if you have an accident or you become the uh, appendix patient. It's kind of like being in a battalion aid station in a forward operating battalion. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, with the exception that you don't have a bunch of medics with you. Uh, you train a trauma team. You also train medical assistants. You have weekly training with a group of select people that you, we taught them how to uh, put in chest tubes. We taught them how to intubate. We taught them how to uh, do IVs, uh, draw blood, uh, any number of things. So that you've got extra hands uh, should a mass casualty occur. And you're only one explosion away from a mass casualty uh, anywhere uh, in the uh, uh, Antarctic program. So uh, you spend a lot of time training uh, people that can help you out uh, in that situation. At Palmer Station, you just have the physician. There's no other medical personnel. There may be a uh, number of EMTs uh, that uh, aren't working as EMTs, but they've worked in the past or are certified as EMTs or run on emergency squads or things like that. So you isolate the people ahead of time that may be helpful, and those are the people you pull onto your trauma team uh, and uh, work with as a medical assistant. At uh, McMurdo Station, during the summer, you usually have a physician and a PA or a nurse practitioner, uh, as well as the flight surgeon uh, and his team are stationed at McMurdo. Uh, so you've got a, a ready group of people that can help there. You also have a pharmacist and a nurse uh, during the uh, summer at McMurdo. During the winter, when the personnel go down to maybe 200 people for the winter, you have just the physician and a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner. So uh, at Amundsen Scott, total personnel wearing over how many? During my winter, we had 45, and that's the normal. Between 45 and 50 is a normal winter over number. Summer personnel are about 150. McMurdo, how many people in the winter? Uh, during the winter, you have anywhere from 150 to 200, and summer personnel are 800 to 1,000. Wow. That's, that's a small town. Mm -hmm. It's a Busy. cross between a mining town and a college uh, community. <laughs> Is there any alcohol? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> it's like Millfest. Exactly. <laughs> on, on steroids. <laughs> okay. And then, Mil, for those of you who are listening uh, in, in the West Coast, Millfest is a, uh, although I just talked to the OUPD, they say it's a lot more sedate now. I haven't been there for a while, but we have these fests at OU. Millfest is notorious because it's usually off the charts crazy. Apparently, they've, they've, they've toned that down quite a bit. But when we talk about the fests in OU, they're a big thing. All, basically, all spring, every week, there's a 
fest of some sort. So mill fest. And then at um, Palmer Station, wintering over, how many people? Winter over, we had 20 uh, people for the winter. Pretty small. It's a small group. Um, the total station population uh, varies between 38 and 44, and many of those are scientists and contractors coming and going on the uh, research vessel uh, Lawrence M. Gould. So uh, you may have 44 on station, and then the Gould will take uh, maybe 15 of those people out, and you'll be back down to your uh, low no lower number until the Gould comes back in a week, uh, bringing you another 15 or 20 people. But the population rarely goes above 44, and 20 of us were just there then for the uh, the lockdown period between mid-June and the end of October, or early October. You mentioned taking these sort of lay people and helping them to learn how to put in chest tubes and that sort of thing. Where is that training conducted? Is it tra done down there as you go, or is it done before they leave, or...? In, at Denver, uh, at least for South Pole, uh, when we were in Denver, everybody did either trauma training or fire training. So half your group went to fireman school to learn how to fight fires because during the winter, they are the fire team. During the summer, there's a group of professional firefighters that are on the ice. At Palmer Station, uh, everyone takes either uh, fire training or trauma training, so they get an introduction to the uh, outdoor medicine course, the NWO, comes in and trains. Um, and then the people that want to be a part of uh, the trauma team will identify themselves uh, upon request so that we know who's interested, first of all, in doing it, because they're going to be much better trainees than someone who doesn't want to have anything to do with it, is just being forced to. And there's usually an abundance of people that want to be a part of that. Uh, the people that go to these stations are incredibly uh, independent, but they're also incredibly community-spirited. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's an exceptional group of people to work with, in my experience. Are they training with simulators? Are they training with in vivo? Are they, what, what are they doing to train We are training any way that we can. Um, we uh, did have a, uh, uh, an artificial head that we could uh, teach them to intubate on. Uh, we didn't have anything other than uh, a, a body with magic marker diagrams on for throwing in chest tubes. Uh, we teach them how to draw uh, blood by uh, putting our arms out and their arms out. Uh, the same with starting IVs. Um, we work on each other. Um, we teach them how to do their own blood typing, and uh, we get them comfortable with the idea that they may be doing some stuff that they're not really comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah, you have to condition them. It takes time to get used to things you're not and seeing. And most of them have been eager and more than willing to learn and put the time into it. Like I said, they've been exceptional. Well, when you think about it, I mean, it could quite literally mean their life or their friend's life. Exactly. If they're not dead serious about it because it's like going to the moon. Yes, they do take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, as well as the fire training. Uh, it's not something, well, this is never going to happen down here. Yes, it may happen, and you will be the difference between us surviving and our demise if you don't do what you're supposed to do and do it well. Yeah, and I'll, if people who are listening to this are young, but some of you may have heard of Apollo 13, and I'll just say that uh, there's a whole team of engineers in Houston and Florida that were working with them when they had their uh, mishap. That was 120 hours of space flight. So that wasn't even, it was just, you know, five days. And they used uh, gravity assist from the moon to get back sooner. It could certainly take a lot longer than five days to get someone out of the ice. Absolutely. So, I mean... As, as tragic and terrifying as Apollo 13 was, think of something even more remote on this planet than getting someone back from space. That's, uh, that, uh, that, to me, when I started thinking about that, I just 
listened to a systems engineering podcast on Apollo 13 and how that worked. And I was thinking, holy cow. I'll put that in perspective for you, Todd. Yeah. Uh, the medical director of the Center for Polar Medical Operations, who was the group that recruited me uh, at the time, was Scott Parazinski. Mm -hmm. Scott is an astronaut. Yeah. He made the statement that it is easier to evacuate someone from the uh, shuttle station, the space station, than it is from Antarctica. Yeah. The South Pole in particular. Yeah, they can be home in about eight hours. Yeah. Yeah, if, if in a necessary... Isn't that, isn't that incredible that, you, that someone in orbit can be home and be getting acute medical care, very robust medical care, much, much faster than they can be on their own on your own planet? Yes. That's crazy. Well, okay, so, Beg, you had something? You're, you're, go ahead, um, please chime in. Steve went through uh, situations where you did have to do emergency situations through Palmer Station with other stations. Well, uh, when I talk about a, a appendicitis, that's kind of the, the gold standard that you think about. A, a, if something's going to happen on the ice, that would be it. Um, especially South Pole, because before you go to South Pole, everybody gets a gallbladder ultrasound, and anybody who has a gallbladder that looks even like it might become angry during that time, they either have the choice of a cholecystectomy uh, or not going. So if you've got sludge there, that gallbladder's gone. Um, you don't have that at any of the other stations. But uh, I had the occasion where a, uh, uh, a Ukrainian... Uh, scientist at Mernadsky Station, which is about 40 miles uh, south of us in the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, developed what was felt to be appendicitis. Uh, his winter-over doctor uh, happened to be an anesthesiologist who, of course, had never done an appendectomy but certainly seen plenty of them. Could just make him forget about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, looked up from the Wall Street Journal long enough to see what was going on. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, he... Uh, attempted to perform an appendectomy, was not able to isolate the appendix, and uh, put three drains in, sewed them back up, and they had no way to evacuate this man. Uh. And so they requested assistance from us, either to try and get our research vessel over there to bring the patient to our station, and then to South America, or to get the patient to King George uh, Island, where they could, uh, the Chilean Air Force uh, could bring in a plane and fly him out. They had a uh, uh, an, an airplane capacity there. So I got on the uh, LMG, the Lawrence M. Gould, uh, the research vessel we use, and uh, went down to Vernatsky Station. We evacuated the patient along with his doctor and stabilized him en route to uh, King George Island, uh, where he was then evacuated to Punta Arenas, Chile, uh, and uh, then off the ice back to Ukraine. Did he rupture? He did not rupture to my knowledge. Uh, he never appeared septic. Uh, they, they only had a limited supply of uh, medications. Ceftriaxone was their only antibiotic. Uh, I was able to take down an abundance of uh, uh, Zosin uh, as well as, uh, um, well, drawing a blank on my flagell. Metronidazole. <laughs> Metronidazole. Yeah. So I had an abundance of antibiotics as well as uh, more IV fluids and uh, so we were able to intervene, intervene more aggressively. Their, their anesthesiologist was incredible. I, I, I have nothing but respect for the job that he, he did yeah. getting this patient stabilized and getting him off the ice. Uh, uh, I don't think anybody could have done it better. 
Probably had a high retrosequel appendix and, you know... Um, well, he's in siphonus, but drains in. At least exactly. if there had been a rupture, he would have, you know, he could have mitigated peritonitis. I mean, th- he was thinking. He was thinking. He nope. was thinking. He, he, he did a, a wonderful job. Uh, uh, Dr. Danilenko, uh, we became friends. Ukrainian. And, uh, uh, Ukrainian. Uh, so, Dr. Dan Linko, Dan- Ukrainian Dan- hero. Linko is, Dan is Linko, Ukrainian Const- hero. Constantine Danilenko. Constantine. I hope you listen to this, Constantine, because you have an American doctor as a deep regard for your biggest fan. <laughs> so that leads us to this question. You, so the medical conditions you handle in Antarctica, everything. Well, minus okay. C-sections probably. You probably don't go down with, you don't, well, you don't do gallbladders and you don't do C-sections probably. Uh, you shouldn't have to do gallbladders. It doesn't mean that a healthy gallbladder doesn't turn sour down there or a stone uh, show up uh, that uh, was previously missed. But uh, for the most part, no gallbladders. Appendix is always concerned. Pregnancy should not be a concern. Uh, we do pregnancy tests before they leave the, uh, the, the stateside, uh, when they get to Australia, and again, when they get on the ice. Uh, yeah, but then you got Milfest going on down there. Well, so what, what, what's, <laughs> what's happening? At, at, at the South Pole, uh, yeah, you could end up with a pregnant patient, but probably not long enough to go to term. Mm. So you may not have to do a delivery. You just may deal with a, a pregnancy, and that's, that's certainly possible. You uh, know with, if it's possible, it's happened. Yeah, it I has. wonder I'm what baby sure was conceived has. on the ice. Um, actually, the Argentinians <laughs> have had a, a number of uh, live births on the ice so that they uh, could legitimize their claim that if anyone has... Uh, uh, a claim to Antarctica, they can because their citizens have actually been born there. They had several military men with wives that were pregnant. They flew the wives to the station where the military men were in the Antarctic Peninsula. And there have been, uh, I think, at least a couple kids born uh, in Antarctica uh, that live in Argentina or are now in Argentina. And that was back in probably the 60s or 70s. It's been a while. So we can't blame Falklands on that. They were already no. doing that. Yeah, they were they just were trying to get that. get some land but uh, ice. Yeah, hopefully uh, pregnancy isn't con- a concern, uh, but wherever there are men and women, there's the, that potential. Uh, most of the women who go on the ice uh, are on birth control, uh, do have IUDs or some preventative measure, and uh, uh, for the most part, use good common sense. So yeah. uh, it wasn't a, a, a situation that uh, I was exposed to. Um, but uh, kidney stones, uh, very realistic. Uh, had two kidney stones down at Palmer uh, just this past winter. Um, your biggest concern would be a, a, a torsed ovary, uh, a, a torsed testicle, uh, something that would put, you know, a, a, an organ at risk uh, and a life at risk there by doing so. Yeah. Uh, a little tougher to diagnose. Uh, you do have an ultrasound. Um, I was never trained in the use of ultrasound. I've trained myself. Um, I played with the ultrasound the entire time I was there to try and become familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I nowhere feel competent uh, to say that uh, I'm a good ultrasounder. Uh, I took pretty decent x-rays. I didn't have a big problem with that. You do all the lab work. You do the x-rays. You run the pharmacy. You maintain the, all the biomedical equipment. You do all the inventory. Um, and you were a dentist. And I was a dentist. I did three dental restorations at the South Pole and uh, only had to do one crown replacement and a couple of dental exams at uh, Palmer Station. So, I think it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things I felt in Iraq 
we didn't, you know, dentists don't typically go forward with uh, with combat units. Is the lack of dental training that physicians get and the need for it when you're operating in austere conditions? Absolutely. You know, the United States doesn't typically face a lot of those problems because we don't deploy people unless they have good dental hygiene. That's a prerequisite. But lots of other countries don't put anything into dental, and they send people far away, and they got dental issues. And I, I, I made a point when I came back, went to Kosovo, to spending every Wednesday afternoon in the dental clinic and telling the dentist, what do I need to know that could go wrong when yeah, you're not that, around? That's incredibly forward-thinking. Oh. And, oh, yeah. and I spent time with uh, my family, Peg's family dentist, uh, in his office uh, before I went down uh, as well, just uh, not go down completely blind and ignorant of uh, ment- uh, dental uh, concerns. Um, didn't spend enough time using a mirror in the mouth. Uh, I earned a whole new respect for dentistry, doing things backwards, upside down, yeah. and everything else. Uh, it, it, it's a real challenge to muscle memory. So do you have a CT scanner down there? No. So what? So we talked, you know, things that I, the actual question is: what can be handled in Antarctica? What can't be handled in Antarctica medically? What 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 can't you do down there? Just physically, because you don't have the equipment, you don't have the resources. What what are the medical things that you'd face that you just cannot functionally take care of? Um, in all honesty, uh, I don't think it exists. You have to be able to take care of everything with what you have because you may not have the option. So, yeah, do I need to put a burrow hole in someone? The Egyptians were doing it before CT scanners. Uh, give me a neurosurgeon on the other end of my telemedicine and let him confirm that, yeah, it's, it's either this or the patient's life. I, I do burr holes. Um, so you have to be prepared mentally to take on challenges that you never dreamed existed in your medical profession. And are you comfortable doing it? Hell no. <laughs> Will you do it if you have to? Hell yes. Hell yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Save someone's life. We talked briefly. Uh, you, were, you corrected my time frame uh, about this physician that was down there that found her own breast cancer and treated her. Yes. And you, you, can you elaborate a little bit about that, what that looked like for her? Yeah, that was Jerry Lynn Nielsen. I believe she was the winner over Doc at the South Pole in 1998 uh, into 1999. And... Uh, Jerry Lynn found a tumor in her own breast or a mass in her own breast. Uh, She performed a biopsy on that tumor at the South Pole, uh, was able to use a uh, uh, microscopic lens on a, uh, with her camera to send pictures of those cells to a pathologist to confirm malignancy. And then they airdropped uh, her chemotherapy uh, prior to their ability to land Uh, on station because of the low temperatures. So she actually made her diagnosis and started her own chemotherapy at the South Pole. And uh, she was evacuated uh, just a little earlier than what the season was scheduled to open. Uh, So uh, that was not a a big concern, but she came back and uh, uh, had her uh, uh, surgery and had a short period of remission, and I believe she died then in 2000 from a recurrence of the breast cancer or metastasis. I'm not sure what the situation was, but she actually wrote a book. I believe it was called On the Ice mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that is worth reading. I, I think that's really, really good. You know, we talk a lot about loss of scope among general practitioners, at least that I see in the eastern part of the United States, of all these turf battles that all these fellowship people and specialists want to take over from FPs. And the traditional GP that you and I would recognize from our training 
I don't know that they exist anymore because you and I probably have broad scope training in inpatient, outpatient care scopes, things that we were exposed to early on that I kind of con- in concern and all these things come up about you've got to be able to adapt and be able to at least consult and get guidance from a specialist and use your hands to replicate what they're trying to describe to you. And um, I'm challenged as an educator to, to, to get the, the young primary care oriented physicians into places and advise them of residencies that will train them to do that stuff, or at least be comfortable enough talking, being talked through something. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This just emphasizes that all the more. Um, okay. So cleaning up at the end of the second segment, Zach, you've been notoriously quiet. <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, I guess one last question I could ask is um, kind of going off. We've been talking a lot about cases and stuff. What case in particular sticks out to you as like the most memorable or the toughest or uh, one that you could you could think about? Well, that would be at uh, Palmer Station on the uh, ship ride across the Drake Passage, uh, during which time we uh, took a heavy swell. And our lead scientist was uh, tossed out of the top bunk and ended up with a fractured pelvis and a head injury and a dislocated shoulder and a fractured scapula, I believe. And so we had to get him uh, through a narrow ship stairway uh, up to the medical clinic and stabilize him. Uh, We changed course from uh, Palmer Station to Ushuaia, Argentina, where... uh, he had a stabilizing surgery and then was put on a, a medical evacuation back to his hometown of Boston, where he had more definitive surgery. So that was before my trip to Antarctica even got started, basically. <laughs> you reported that on your on your blog, John. It was just really rough seas that, that caused all this? The Drake Passage is considered to be the roughest body of water in the entire world. Um, I'm sure that's disputable. Um, there have been many smooth crossings, uh, which time they call it Drake Lake. Um, but oftentimes it's, it's very rough crossing. And, uh, in fact, our ship was, uh, just pulling about, uh, to kind of wait out the heavy waves. And in the process of turning about is when we took the big cross wave that changed the toss of the ship, uh, in a manner that, uh, threw a number of people off their feet and, uh, our head scientist off, uh, the top bunk. Where were you when that happened? I was in my bunk and asleep. It was about one o'clock in the morning. And I never even woke up until I heard a knock on the door that said, Doc, we need you. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't even aware that well, you were on Yankee Station. You didn't, you, you ship to you is like your home. You wouldn't even think about it. Well, uh, I won't say that because uh, once I got up and got my feet on the deck, uh, I got the worst case of seasickness I've ever had. So I took care of this uh, patient initially most of the time on my knees uh, because anytime I stood up, I got so lightheaded and dizzy and nauseated, I could hardly stand it. <laughs> Ships pitching and rolling at the same time? Absolutely. Really? How, how big of a ship are we talking long? Um, I think the LMG is about 238 feet in yeah. length. Yeah, I have a friend of mine who's actually on the, he's a navigation officer on the Queen Elizabeth, uh, the aircraft carrier that Brits have. And he and I have gone back and forth about ship handling. Because, of course, I know how to handle things that fly in the air. I don't know how to handle things in the ocean. And so he's always telling me about respective ship lengths and how they handle uh, some, you know, depending on their length. And there's some sweet spots in there where, like, some ships are just not quite long enough to make it reasonable. And they just ma- bounce you around. I'm going to ask uh, ask him about that. Because you say it was 200 feet? I think a little over 200 feet. Man. 
And those those people, that's their job. They go back and forth down that all the time. Yeah. The crews do. Yeah. Most most of the people tolerate it well. I had a a, a patch on a scopolamine patch. Uh, I had ten milligrams of uh, um, meclizine on board, and I had two wrist bands on, <laughs> <laughs> and was still alternating between patient care and dry heaves. <laughs> so, so are these? Uh, is the visual picture of the deck of that ship something covered in ice? Uh, it can be, um, depending on what the outward uh, weather conditions are. I mean, it can be anything from sunshine to rain to squalling sleet storms. But it can be cold enough that ocean is freezing as it hits the ship. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, salt water. Yeah. Salt water. Wow. Hmm. Peg, you have any thoughts? I'm going to close out the second segment. We'll go to the third. And then you guys can go on with your lives to... No? Good. Zach, no, you, I can't any other thoughts? It. Just yet? <laughs> Not questions, just thoughts. Well, this has been fantastic so far. So uh, I've been very interested, and it's been a great episode. So Yeah. Okay. Well, um, th- th- this ends the second segment of uh, Dr. Allerding and his experiences as a physician practicing wintering over at various stations, U.S. stations on the uh, Antarctic continent. And uh, we will join you for a third segment at some time in the future. Thank you for, for joining us on Rotations. Rotations is pre-recorded in front of a live audience. Rotations is an experiment in student medical journalism. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcasts at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so just give us a second. We'll we'll figure. We'll get ourselves going. Actually, I need more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel, I'm Sarah Adkins. Mm. Hi, Sarah. How are you going? I've got to tell you, about it. I heard you. You were sitting here. <laughs> yeah, Sarah is a pharmacist extraordinaire. One of our most valued instructors. Oh. Well, oh. Oh. Yeah, and one of the most pleasant people I ever work with, actually. <laughs> yeah. Todd and I have a pretty good time. We, mm. we think we're pretty funny. That's the boy, <laughs> that is absolutely correct. We think we're pretty funny. That's right. 
Okay. Well, that's, that's the only thing that counts. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> if we can keep ourselves laughing, we're in good shape. Uh, exactly.